Hi, I'm Naveen Sika, CEO of Terviva, and I beat the often path by working with nature at a time where nature is more important than ever. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories, and unfortunately, caring about the planet is somewhat unusual in the world of business. Well, not anymore, because my guest today is Naveen Sika, and he's the CEO of Terviva, an ag tech company that's transforming the food landscape. So we rely on just a few crops for our basic survival. Think corn, wheat, and so on. But we know that there are many, many, many issues with modern agriculture as it's been performed. It's not super great for the planet or us right now. Well, Naveen and his company have created a true win-win-win company by creating a regenerative food system based on the Pangamia tree, a tree that grows where many other crops can't. In addition to reclaiming bad farmland, this tree produces both oil and protein with far-reaching implications for our health and the planet. Now, they've received somewhere in the ballpark of $100 million in funding. To date, I could be off, but you get the idea. And Terviva has been recognized as one of the 25 most innovative ag tech startups by Forbes several years in a row. So it's such an honor for me to sit down right now with the legend himself, Naveen Sika. Well, welcome to the show, Naveen. I'm very happy that we can now celebrate the end of climate change and global warming. So good job. <laughs> We're getting there, Ross. We did it, right? <laughs> Ten years later, it's over. Problem solved. Can we report that back right now? Yes. If, for, for the optimists in your audience, let's report that back. Okay, great. Because it's very important. We can't give any negative news. We can't be Debbie Downers. We have to only be happy and positive with the status quo. So what do you believe? Look, we that... may be climate change by wiping out the human species. Like that's the sort yeah. of direction we're going at. So, you know, take us out of the equation and the planet will <laughs> right. probably recover. That's right. We just need a few thousand volcanoes and we'll be fine. <laughs> um, planet Earth is looking good. So welcome to the show. Obviously, I have deep respect for what you've been doing. And you've been doing it for a very long time. So you're not one of these fly-by-night greenwashing eco stories. You've been at this for an extended period of time, at least a decade with your new venture. Um, but tell us a little bit about exactly what you're working on, what you've been working on, and yeah. why it matters. Yeah, you bet. So uh, the whole premise of Terviva when we started it kind of comes from the name, right? Ter and Viva, which have the word derivations of land and life. Um, you know, I'm, I like to consider myself an agriculture professional, but I didn't grow up in farming. I've only been working in and around the ag space for about 15 years. And as an outsider, when I looked at the ag space, you know, 15, 17 years ago, even a little bit before that, when I was uh, working in West Africa, um, I saw a system that was reliant on a handful of crops for our global food needs. And it reminded me a little bit of, of the energy equation where we use things like, frankly, like petroleum, oil and coal for all of our, our all of our energy needs historically we didn't really work on things like solar or wind historically that much so the whole idea behind terviva was how do we create more diversification in this very concentrated food system right you know a handful of crops often grown in very selected parts of the world and then actually shipped around the world right so if you think about our major crops like corn and soy, like the vast majority of those crops are grown here in the US and in South America, then we ship that all around the world. Well, even to my you know simple eyes 15, 17 years ago, that seemed 
foolish. One, you're not kind of creating more economic opportunities around the world for farmers by spreading the love of where these things are growing. Two, it's going to be climate unstable, right? You got bad weather in one parts of those, you know, places where you're growing these crops, you're going to have you know, shortages Oops. of food, right? <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, you know, three, it just, it just seems so um, dated, right? Like we have so many modern tools around, you know, genomics, even for non-GMO crop development. And we've got, you know, distributed infrastructure now coming online. And we've even got things like AI and blockchain. It just felt like more modern thinking should come to this whole supply chain to make it, you know, economically more enriching and environmentally more stable. So it was really that idea. Um, the thing to look to when you, you know, when you think about the sort of food space is not maybe those commodity crops, like the, the big ones, but in communities around the world, frontline communities around the world, there are what we call indigenous crops uh, that are grown, you know, in frontline communities where there's poor agricultural land. Could we take those indigenous crops and make them the next corn or the next soy? Could you not have five major crops around the world, but could you have 50 Right. That was the idea behind Terviva. Could we build a platform to bring these more minor crops, things like lentils or cassava or sorghum, or in our case, the pangamia tree, or moringa, or you know, tiger nut or croton nut or fava bean or lupini? Like there's tons of these frontline community crops, right? Could we bring them up to being major sources of food, like corn, like soy, like palm? Uh, create economic opportunities in different parts of the world and create more environmental stability and resilience. So it wasn't, it, it, it is, it was a big idea. Um, as we get into what happened since that idea was formed, I mean, I think operationalizing a business of this kind of, you know, big thinking in the real world of food and ag is hard. Right. And so we've had to make a lot of choices along the way. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you ever feel like just in general that there's this 50-50 race with the human species in general that 50% we destroy ourselves, 50% we invent our way out of it with some crazy new tech and it's just a real genuine coin toss as to which one is going to win out in the end? Or do you feel like it's shifted or it's not quite 50-50? <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 that's, a, that's a very um, – that balance – it's funny because I work in this space, so I suppose inherently I have to be very optimistic about the direction of the food system. But I'm I'm super nervous. I have to be like completely honest, right? Um, because something a funny things happened in our world in the last ten years, right? Which is like technology and technology leaders have kind of captured the zeitgeist and the capital, right? So a lot of approaches right now to the food and ag space are what I would call not nature-based. They're man-made, synthetic, invent-around-nature approaches to the food system. So I'm kind of an all-of-the-above all guy. Like, I think we got to do a lot of stuff in the food system to make it resilient. But so much of the energy right now is around, like, making meat and, like, you know, that steel vats, right? Or making, like, substitutes for meat in steel vats or, like, growing crops indoors now, right? Or, you know, genetically modifying the hell out of crops to make them do like crazy different things. Um, I worry about that, right? Because I think that um, the best answers to humanity often lie in working with the planet and with nature and not trying to work around it. Um, I don't, I don't think that's always necessarily bared out, but um, let's go with 50, 50, right. Yeah. As, as our ability <laughs> to invent around this. But I think that um, we also have to learn from the mistakes of the past here. 
Yeah. Because I think we all just sit around refreshing our phones every single day, scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And we're just waiting for that day where it says, hey, finally, miracle drug solves cancer. Finally, climate change isn't an issue anymore, right? There's got to be a thing. Just, oh, we haven't thought of this one One thing. thing. And there it is. And I also love that we put this emphasis on these superfoods or new foods of which your product, you know, if I say, oh, the Pangamia tree, then, oh, that's it. That's the answer to it, right? I know. It's one thing I've never heard of before, but it's going to solve all of this. So how did you land upon this particular plant and what are some of the benefits of this thing compared to other things? You mentioned it's a frontline crop. Yeah. And and Ross, I just, I think it's a great point. And I think it it, it actually kind of really contributes to my own backstory. this idea that there's one thing to solve all of our problems is a uniquely human thing that we do. Like nature never thinks that one thing solves things. Like nature is like kind of a system, right? right it all works but together. But if you think about what got us into this mess, right? Like even take it away from take it away from food for a second and look at energy, right? When we started using petroleum, right, way back, you know, a couple hundred years ago for our modern energy needs, um, it was actually a great thing because before that we were using whale oil. Right, like we were slaughtering whales for their blubber candle, yeah, (laughs) right, Um, for our energy needs, right. So petroleum was this great thing, like save the whales, like let's use petroleum. What happened, right? We did use it to save the whales. Then we use petroleum for everything. I'm looking at my desk. There's there's petroleum in everything: plastics, cars, airplanes. You know, obviously energy, right? Everything, right? Your rug, your rug is made of petroleum, right? So. There is this thing about humanity where we tend to take things like too far beyond where like it was, it moves from good to being like a problem, right? So I agree with you, you know, the the idea here is to have more things happening to solve our common problems. So, you know, going back to like, you know, where are we and what are we doing with the pangamia tree? We are hoping, I am hoping that it is, what we're doing is emblematic of the fact that you could have 50 other crops like pangamia, right? So the pangamia tree is this, uh, it's it's what I call a soybean producing tree. It's a legume tree. It's in the legume family. It's a distant relative of soy. And it think of a tree like an almond tree, right? It flowers and it sets a crop with bees. And instead of it being almonds, it's actually a bean. It's like a big soybean. This tree has been around forever. And like a lot of in kind of indigenous community crops, it was it was favored by frontline communities because it, it did two things. One, it grew really well on crappy land. A lot of these frontline community crops, like no input, put the tree on the ground, limited water, no fertilizer. You're gonna it's gonna grow and you're gonna get something out of it. Two, hmm. it had some frontline community crops have a minor usage, right? It's typically like for in Pangamia's case, the beans have these bitter compounds that are very good for cosmetics and personal care and, you know, some health related benefits. Right. But all these frontline community crops have like something that they're good for, like some kind of minor usage. Right. So what we did with Pangamia is two things. One, we took that essence of the growing really well on poor quality land and we proved you could get a lot of yield. Right. So we still use really poor quality land and we get a lot of beans. Right. If you take the world average of soybean production, we can produce five, seven times more beans per acre than soybeans. And we can do it on land where if you grew soybeans, you would get zero. You would get zero soybeans, right? So that's the first thing we did. The second thing we did was, okay, these beans are super bitter, right? But they, like fundamentally, they're like a soybean. You've got a vegetable oil in it. You've got a protein in it, just like a soybean. 
can we find a way to debitter these beans, use some kind of food processing, ideally natural food processing, to debitter these beans so we get something very similar to soybean oil and soybean protein, but obviously like, you know, growing a tree on degraded land, you're having so many more environmental benefits, right? So we, it, it takes a long time, but we did both, right? And kind of going back to my original story, I had hoped initially we would do this for like five crops, 10 crops, right? But it's yeah. hard. We've had to raise a crap load of money and build a huge team just to do this one tree. So um, what I, at this point, what I want to do is like kind of, you know, see if we can be a platform uh, kind of almost both a marketing platform and a vision platform to bring other crops forward. But we're going to have to bring other entrepreneurs along with us. It's going to take a whole system to kind of add more crops into our food system at scale. Yep, that makes sense. So a common criticism of people who eat vegetarian or vegan diets, they call uh, people like me soy boys. So now they'll call us bean boys, I guess. Yeah. If we replace the tofu in our diets. Right? Yeah, with pongamia. <laughs> with pongamia. Yeah. Um, it's tricky, right? I mean, um, we, you know, what I take from your comment there is like we, the diversification of our diet is also equally as important, right? So at the same time, we have to kind of bring more crops forward and we kind of have to make them broadly usable, like what I call center of the plate food, not like, you know, something you sprinkle on your salad, but the salad, right? Um, we, we also have to, human nature, we got to play to it, right? And humans naturally want to see, you know, one thing being used in a lot of things like, Oh, there's, there's pongamia in that, or what we call panova, right? We're branding the ingredients, panova, oil, there's panova right? in that there's panova yeah. in that. Right. So, um, you know, we're going to have to sort of play the deck of cards that, you know, human interest likes to see, which is like getting panova into a lot of things and, you know, kind of beating panova forward while at the same time trying to bring that diversity of other food products into the system. It's tricky. Makes sense. Have you by chance seen the movie happiest little farm? It's a documentary about a family. Yes. Yeah. That's a life-changing movie. I loved that because they show amazing. this just horrible land, just terrible land. You think nothing's ever going to grow there, burnt out. And then within seven years, it is this complete ecosystem. And it speaks to the point you said earlier about how in nature, all of these things are connected. In the beginning, they had problem this, problem that. Oh, the snails are coming up. And now we've got too many coyotes. And all of those things eventually solve themselves when some sort of stasis was achieved with all of the yeah. moving parts. So how do you see that? You, you said people have worked against or around nature or with this uniquely human type of solution. How do we create a more holistic solution in general that we're working with nature? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great jumping off point. And, you know, one of the, you know, so on the happiest little farm, a couple of things struck me when I watched it. First of all, was the diversity of outcomes they were having. Like, oh my God, they were like doing like 50 different things. They were producing like a hundred different outputs. And then the second was the enormous amount of work that yeah. they had to do to do that. So um, I think that's a, a lovely uh, sort of microcosm, but not entirely practical when you sort of move that into the real world, right? So um, in the real world, unfortunately, we're used to like, you know, the food system is like, you know, what I, I say, it's like food everywhere food always available food for cheap everywhere always cheap cheap right yeah. um that's the system we've built which i think has actually solved a lot of problems around the world if you think about like you know hunger and you know uh, affordability right but it's come at the cost of health and climate right so um i think we got to keep that those elements but we got to kind of heal health and heal climate 
And we just we're not we're not going to be able to do that by having that many diversified outcomes on a field. I think we can have more diversified outcomes on a field. Um, I think it's really hard in the U.S. to do that, where you have a declining farmer population and you have larger amounts of acres to be farmed by fewer people. And so, you know, your natural tendency is going to be to do less on those acres with big pieces of equipment that can automate it. So um, I think where we could see diversification of outcomes is frankly in Asia and Africa, Mm. right, where you have a lot of small holding farmers still um, where, you know, I don't think we want to see a repeat of the U.S. farming system. Right. Right. Um, So I think the happiest little farms need to happen in Asia and Africa. (laughs) probably with fewer outcomes on the field, but more than just growing one thing. Um, and, uh, you know, the, what's interesting about a tree like Pangamia is that when you put trees on a field, you know, if you really stack the, the trees on a field like we do in the U.S. with almonds, you put about 200 trees in the field, in, in an acre, excuse me, right? But what you could do in, in smallholding farm systems is you could put five or you could put 50, right? And then you could farm in between. You could graze livestock, you could farm you know, grains or pulses, you know, wheat, rye, barley, corn, soy, peas, right? Um, coffee, pineapple, right? You know, um, that's that's the system that I think we want to see in Terraviva. We like working with a tree crop because it allows for you to use the airspace above the field, so to speak, and you can still use a lot of the ground with it. So um, I love the vision of a kind of a what I call diversified outcomes on a field. I think realistically, you could probably only get a couple, two or three going. And I think the place to do that is in small holding farm systems that, you know, are also going to, by the way, be pretty climate impacted. Right. Right. And on your website, you mentioned that the the tree itself, obviously, it sequesters carbon. And, and you also said that it grows in places that other things can't. So let's say I've got a, fiel, a field somewhere that I think nothing can grow and I know I can't grow soy. And what is going to be the effect of putting Pongamia in there after a couple of years, yeah. five years? It, it's awesome. I mean, you, you see a couple things happen right off the bat. It depends on what was happening on that field before, but um, most of the impact act, I mean, you'll see trees growing, which is really pretty, but most of the impact is actually happening below ground. Um, Pongamia, the reason why it survives well with uh, limited inputs, like not as much water, no fertilizer, is because um, it has a big root system. So the tree puts out a lot of roots, shallow and deep. And two things are happening in that root system. Pangemia is a legume, so it actually creates its own nitrogen. It, um, it, it, it has a mechanism where it can capture nitrogen out of the air, which is our most abundant element in the air, and it can make nitrogen in the soil for itself. All legumes do this. So you have a restoration of nitrogen around the tree. And it also, as a result, you know, you're creating what they call organic matter in the soil. You're creating carbon in the soil here by growing all those roots. And so other organisms start to come back on that field. So uh, just like with a lot of other legume trees out there, when you plant uh, a pongamia tree on a degraded piece of land, over time, you start to see things coming back to life around that field because there's activity happening below the soil. So what's really cool to see is like not only do you get a beautiful tree above ground, but you're starting to see all this life come around on the top of the, the top of the soil as well. Incredible. So to what extent do you think that this could be used to fight desertification? Can it help us bring back some of the desert areas or is that a bridge too far? Yeah, no, actually it's interesting Uh, before we came around and started to work on the pangamia tree to kind of, kind of improve the yields and also use it for food. 
it had this history in kind of Eastern medicine, right? Indian and Chinese medicine, where it was used for its medicinal property, the beans from the tree were used for medicinal properties. In the last, that's like thousands of years old, right? This tree is in the Ayurveda, like the original Ayurvedic texts of India. Dang. More recently, last three decades, it's been used for reforestation, right? So these degraded lands, you know, that's why it's so abundantly planted, for example, in India, these degraded, you know, lands, they put pangamia trees and other trees on that land to restore them, right? So absolutely, you know, desertification and degradation of agricultural land is a huge problem. There's some crazy stat that we lose like a football field of land every minute or something like that. Um, it's a huge opportunity to, to not only kind of recover that land, Ross, but to make food, food on it. Right. So it's like a double win-win. Yeah. And that's yeah, what yeah. it's all about. That's the yeah. thing that we're trying to find on this show. Win-wins. <laughs> Win-win-wins. Yeah. And the thing I would good sort for of really you, emphasize good for the here is like... Good for all yeah. of us. Yeah, yeah. It's, and this is not the only crop that can do this. Right? Like that, I mean, we're, this is the one we're working on and we're, we're kind of you know, beating our pangamia drum here. But to kind of take it back to this idea of like indigenous community crops, there's, there are dozens of these crops that grow really well on poor quality land. We just need to kind of modernize them into the food system. And just find ways of capturing all of the good that they can do and, and figuring out what exactly it can be used for. Removing right. bitterness here, putting it into oil form there, putting it into protein. Yeah, decoloring form there. it. Sometimes yeah. you gotta do some breeding work and we do all non-GMO breeding, but we take advantage of genomics tools, which have gotten so cheap now, to do that work. Sometimes you gotta kinda get the yields to be more stable. You gotta understand what's happening on that side to make it more economical to grow. It, it's all possible. Yeah. And taking some of those ideas from the petroleum industry. I've said it before on this show, but the one thing that they're so, so good at is just maximizing this thing and just injecting it into Amazing. everything. Like you said, everything on your desk has petroleum in it and somehow. So they've figured out ways to put it in literally everything. And I learn every yeah. week about new stuff. It's all the inks, apparently, in <laughs> yeah. every greeting card you've ever seen. That's petroleum-based because... I mean, I, think I, about I, it with corn, though. We even do that with corn, right? True. There's corn, Ethanol like all that. corn utensils now. Like you go like to some like, you know, eco-friendly restaurant, and, like there's corn plastic cups and corn fiber utensils. Obviously, there's, you know, corn for feed, which is the huge thing. There's corn for fuel. We use corn and to power our vehicles. it's not even that vehicles. good. Right. <laughs> and it's there's, not even of that course, effective. the infamous high fructose corn syrup. Yeah. I mean, like, who would have bought corn? Right? Like, we use it for all these things. So, to your, you, you made a really interesting comment earlier about, like, there's this balance here, right? Like, you want, we want to put pangamia into everything, but that's the problem, too. So, <laughs> right. we got we to gotta like walk a fine win. line here, right? Right. Um, before it's like, okay, forget corn. This is the way. Cause yeah, in the U S the advantage we have is just huge, huge swaths of fertile farmland. That's one of the, Hey, go United States. Great. Yeah. We got a lot of that here and other places don't have as much, but what we yeah. do with it is all of that monoculture stuff, you know, just state right. after state of the single crop farm. Um, so yeah, I think you're right that 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 it is country dependent and kind of along those lines and moving back. So you you hinted earlier about West Africa, I believe. You said that you spent some time there. So travel a big theme on this show in general. So talk to me about before this idea. Why were you traveling? What were you doing? Was it just personal? Was it study? Was it business related at all in that time? Yeah, no. Um, you know, the 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 backstory here, you know, in some ways pretty classic kind of, you know. Asian immigrant background story, um, uh, you know, lucked into the ovarian lottery, born to parents who had emigrated from India to the United States, um, a, a doctor and an engineer, and 
um, you know, I was raised here in the States between mostly New Jersey, but, you know, in and around the New York area. And, you know, again, a kind of a, a benefit of, of, you know, being in a, in a solid upper middle-class family. I, when I went to college, I had the luxury of studying whatever the heck I wanted. Um, so I went ahead and studied political science and French because, you know, in the nineties, that was a very practical pathway to a job. Um, and, you know, meandering through Europe for a very long, almost year long study abroad, I ended up, um, I turned 21 living in the country of Togo, um, for a long summer working for the U S state department and had a few different projects that I was, you know, that you would hand the intern naturally, um, and one of them was to, you know, just drive around up country, different parts of, of the area and take a look at, you know, typically USAID funded projects, um, that, uh, were around agriculture. And it, it, in a way it brought me back to my childhood. Um, while I was born and raised here in the U S literally every summer from birth until the age of 16, I spent the summer in India and, mm. um, I, you know, you kind of start to see, you have, you build this juxtaposition of what, you know, what's happening in the developed world and then what's happening in the develop developing world. You see a lot of agriculture, you know, happening in a very different way. And, you know, I was, I was, I remember being pretty struck in particular in West Africa by the fact that in certain of these projects, they were growing corn and soy and they don't eat corn and soy in West Africa, but you grow corn and soy because it's a, it's a, you could do it all on one field and it's like currency, right? Somebody will buy that corn and soy from you. You get paid for that. And then you can go buy your cucumbers or your, you know, your petroleum oil for your scooter or whatever have you. Right. So, um, even back then it, it struck me as like, something's wrong about this, right? Like they're not even growing the food they eat. They're growing something else that they can sell that they can buy what they want. And I get it. I get it. Right. Cause it's easier to grow a field of corn than growing like 15 vegetables that you need. And you have too much, too much of one thing. You got to sell it to somebody. I get it. But, um, it just struck me that the system wasn't working right. And, you know, when I graduated, I'd never worked, a like other than working as like a, you know, like a coffee shop or as a waiter or something like that, I'd never worked at like a professional business job. Um, but everybody I, I'd worked in government jobs. I worked for my U S congressman. I worked for the state department. And everybody I talked to in government said, you ought to go work in the private sector. A kid like you that wants to do good. Private sectors are, you know, companies are thinking more about how to do good in the world. Um, and so having never really worked in a private sector company, I uh, got a job as a management consultant, uh, which was a thing you could do in the late 90s as a person with a French degree. And um, <laughs> uh, I ended up working in different industries, different roles in different industries and learning a little bit more about the fundamentals of business. And um you know, my natural interest, which I can elaborate on, gravitated toward the nature-based part of the sort of world of commerce than, you know, some of the human capital intensive parts of the world of commerce. So um, that's kind of how I got going in agriculture. Incredible. So yeah, what a winding path. Yeah. So definitely fits with the premise of this show. You have yeah. not gone straight forward at all, and now you're doing something completely out of left field. Did you ever imagine... Yeah. You said about 15 years ago, you kind of got in this part of things. Did you imagine before then that your life would be anything like this? No, I didn't. There was this fateful choice I made, obviously, to be an entrepreneur, uh, which, you know, there was no, I wasn't a kid on the corner selling lemonade, you know, and making a hustling on, you know, cutting people's lawns in the summer. That wasn't me. 
Um, it, you know, it, it's a bit more of an involved story, but um, the decision to go out on my own was more about kind of like YOLO, right? You only got one life. Um, and, you know, a couple other things happened along the journey. This is sort of like a random thing, but, you know, I mentioned I was, uh, I was, you know, working in West Africa in the late nineties, what actually pulled me there was, um, was related to my thesis in college. There was a civil war in Sierra Leone and, um, the peace talks were happening in the country of Togo. And so that's kind of why I was interested in being in country with the U S state department at that time, because my thesis was around the Rwandan genocide fun topic. Uh, don't have to go into that, but um, kind of along the way, um, my studies and then some, some some unfortunate things that happened in my personal life in my twenties, which I can get into if we're curious. They really they really kind of etched on my brain this idea that you only have one life, and you know I, I had a great six seven years in management consulting. I was pretty good at it. I was pretty successful, and when I decided to go back to grad school to get my MBA. Um, I very deliberately picked a school where I thought would have a strong natural resources bend UC Berkeley. And I don't know, like I just kind of saw a lot of my classmates going after very traditional jobs and, you know, at investment banks and in management consulting firms again. And um, I just, I don't know, I just, this idea came across my plate. It connected a lot of pieces for me and my own personal journey. It just made me be like, well, let me just give this thing a shot. And, you know, the funny thing is like, I gave myself, I was married, I'm married. I was married at the time. I gave myself three months, you know, told my wife, give me three months to work on this because I have no income coming in here, right? You go to grad school, you business school, you expect to come out and be making real money. Um, three months, three months, three months. Eventually, about a year in, um, I submitted a, uh, I had a couple of older, wiser co-founders that were mentoring me and I submitted into like a business plan competition. The idea of Termiva, like fundamentally what we do net right now. And we won a big prize. We won like this like $100,000 prize and we didn't even Amazing. have a bank account, right? So like the actual go moment here, you know, was the fact that we got this prize and we're like, are we going to cash this check? We need like a bank <laughs> account. We need to incorporate. So um, that was the, that was the real, you know, sort of jump off the bridge moment. So two things, what were you working on? If not setting up a business during that first year or three months being very optimistic, I probably, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. were you just developing the business plan? What were you exactly doing in that time to get ready for that go moment? Yeah, I, it's a, it's a great question. And you know, it's really, really hard to start a new crop business from scratch. Right. So what I was doing was I was basically kind of going around the world, visiting with people that were already in some capacity working with Pongamia, right? And there were really, even though it was planted in the U.S. as like an ornamental, and by the way, I visited where I could find these trees in the U.S., particularly in Florida, to see how they were growing. Um, I was like, gosh, I got to start somewhere. I got I to start off with something else somebody's done in the research side. And so my travels took me to India and to Australia which is where this tree is considered native, both countries, and there's been a lot of good university work. So I was just kind of traveling around and trying to put pencil to paper here. How many beans can we make? What kind of land do we need to grow it on? What kind of economics do we need to get to make a grower want to plant this, a farmer want to plant this? Uh, and how much is it going to cost to kind of get us to that point, right, where we have something viable to prove out? So, um, and truthfully, I wasn't sure we would, I, I wasn't sure I would make it, right? I wasn't sure like the numbers would pencil out. I, had the help of a lot of close friends, some of whom are still in the company right now, uh, to put this together. But you know, the the best way to know whether you're on to something is to test it, 
right? And you know what's amazing about this country is we have so many forms in which to be an entrepreneur. We have accelerators and incubators and business plan competitions. And you know, um, I just kept putting the idea out there and iterating on it. And I didn't necessarily think it would connect, right? But it, it did. Wow. So I'm going to press you just slightly on what you alluded to earlier. You said there were some personal things. If you if you want to push back on this, feel free. But what were the personal yeah. things that YOLOified your life, or maybe just hint? Yeah, to sure. Them a little bit. I don't I don't talk about it much, and probably this will be new news to even people in our company who listen to this. Um, but I'm happy to talk about it because you know I think it's it's a, it's a it's a great space to do it. So um, when I was a what two things happened very specifically when I was 22. Uh, a good friend of mine, also 22, took his own life unexpectedly, um, which is tough. You know, actually, we were seniors in, I think I was 21, actually, uh, about to turn 22. We were seniors in college, um, and it was a total surprise. And when I was 27, um, what I call, like, my cousin brother, like, you know, uh, somebody super close to me in my life, top five person in my life, he also took his own life. Totally unrelated, totally unrelated. So 22, 27, right? Um, and you know, when, when it, when it happens the first time you have a, it's hard to make sense of it, right? Like you, you struggle with it. I struggled with it. I, you know, I, I, I went to some therapy to understand it. Um, when it happens the second time, um, I mean, I'm not saying you forget the first time, but you never forget the second time. Right. Mm. Um, it just etches into your mind that, the human condition is super fragile, whether it's, you know, our own state of mind or, you know, just the fact that we could go at any time. Right. Um, it just, it just left. And I still feel this way, right? Like, you know, it, it's a weird thing, but if you want to appreciate life, you know, death is a good way of, of, of appreciating life. Right. Um, and I still think about it to this day, you know, if, if I'm, if I'm probably known for one thing among my colleagues, it's a sort of a generally positive attitude. It's not that I'm positive. It's that I'm just, I can't, I don't forget that, you know, death could be around the corner. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, when I, when I YOLO'd into Terra I wasn't necessarily sure it would work <laughs> out. I think there's a shitload of luck, by the way, that contributes to the success of Terra which I really should talk about more. But, um, you know, it was just this idea that like, you know, seems like an interesting idea. Let's just pull on it. I don't need to, I don't need to have any kind of a traditional journey. Right. What's traditional, right? You could, you could be gone tomorrow. Completely agree. And it just shocks me that more intelligent people and people of privilege don't seem to recognize this or at least publicly admit it. You recognize that you had great parents and that you grew up in a good life. Uh, I did too. And even though there were things that could have been better about my childhood and yours and anybody else's, I'm sure, generally, I was very lucky to be born where I was in this country and with what I had and to have the opportunities that were available to me. And some days, despite all of the good things that I have, you wake up and you're stressed or I feel a tightness in my chest or I feel I don't want to do this thing. Some days, especially when you're on your own as an entrepreneur, things aren't working out or even like, oh, I'm not yeah. growing as fast as I'd like or people aren't responding. Like there's these things that stress us out and can make us have a bad day. And it's hard for all of us sometimes. And Always. I'm just shocked that more privileged and smart people don't recognize just this one thought. If it's hard for me sometimes, how hard must it be for people less privileged yeah, than me? Absolutely. That's it. 
if it's yeah. hard for every if Elon Musk wakes up and he has a bad day sometimes, which I imagine he's going to have quite a few of in the next couple months, imagine how hard it is for somebody else who doesn't have what he has. And that is the only train of thought that I wish more people would adopt. And I think it's empathy yeah. or call it what you want or this desire of how can we do good for these people who are human beings in other parts of the world? How can I benefit them? And very few people seem to yeah. be asking that question. And that's why it's off the beaten path, unfortunately. You know, it's so I, I think that's a really insightful set of comments you made, Ross. And a couple of things to, to just sort of pull on that a little bit further. One, you know, what I think the essence of what you described, this idea of empathy and uh, kind of openness to your own condition and others, I actually think that's the the essence of innovation in, in many respects. This idea that like, you know, I have had it good and uh, I should do something with the fact that I had it good, <laughs> right? I think is the essence of innovation. Um, and that's why... I, I think many entrepreneurs that I know in this space have have come from a similar background, right? Come from that idea of like, you know, I've had it good. I've had these good things handed to me. Like, why not try to do something for others, right? That's the first thing. The second thing is I would kind of almost lament, I think in the last, again, kind of going back to the tech thing. And I have no, I have no, I'm not like a Luddite, right? I have no like argument with Elon Musk and, you know, his coterie, right? Um, but the, mo the modern manifestation of the entrepreneur is like this psychotic, crazy, intense person, right? Like, you know, in, or in some dimensions, like a Musk or a Zuckerberg, right? Um, I don't think that's the essence of innovation. I think that's getting all the press, right? I think the essence of innovation is what you said, right? Which is like empathy. And by the way, I have no doubt that Elon Musk is a highly empathetic person. Like, I don't know him personally, but like when I read what he thinks about, you know, the the environment and the world, like I think he has that empathy. I think what gets play is that like, you know, he's a, kind of a crazy guy, like this sort of like somewhat insane guy. So um, I think being off the beaten path is less about being like a crazy, <laughs> a crazy big thinker and more about like, where does your empathy come from? Right. And I'm also fascinated by the question of where do we go in? Where do we jump in as a human being? So if you are a smart person, if you're an ambitious person, you want to make a difference, even if that difference is just first motivated by personally benefiting yourself or changing your own life, or if you're really altruistic by benefiting somebody else, I'm always fascinated by where people make the decision to go in. Why this plant? Yeah. Why this product? Why this thing? Knowing that you're going to spend years of your life, decades of your life with this thing. So what was it about this particular plant this particular idea that you just knew i'm gonna go in on this whether it works or not yeah um i'm not i'm not a super religious person but it's it's a little spiritual like you know when a lot of lucky things happen in the journey and a lot of lucky things have happened with this tree right like you know first you know we were able to kind of you know we were able to sort of assemble the initial capital right which is sort of like Pretty, pretty hard when you think about the fact that most investors don't want to invest in something like a tree because it's going to take a long time, right? Then, um, as we were kind of beginning to build out the company, um, it just so happened that one of the few places in the U.S. where this tree grows, Florida, was experiencing a collapse in a million-acre tree crop called citrus, right? Um, the citrus industry, you know, everybody has images of Florida and like golden globes of oranges everywhere. Well, 
they used to have a million acres of citrus like 15 years ago. They're down to about 300,000 because of a disease that's eliminated the crop. So here I am with a new crop at scale (laughs) and it already grows there a little bit for a collapsing tree farming community. Right. So that's, that's a huge piece of luck, you know, just a a couple more. Um, Then we're able to actually deep. I mean, these beans have been around forever. We're able to actually debitter these beans. And we have a lot of intellectual property around how we do that. But I will tell you, it's not that complicated, right? It, it shocks me that nobody else figured this out by accident, <laughs> you know, 500 years ago, right? Um, so we've got that element. And then, you know, another fact is that it takes a long time to create a supply of these beans. You plant these trees, but like all these trends are in our favor, like suddenly plant-based foods, suddenly consumers will eat things that they've never heard about before in their lives. Suddenly carbon credits and environmental markets are put. So we've had so much luck in building this company, right? You start to wonder, like, is it luck or is it supposed to be, right? And again, I'm not like super religious, but it does take on this sort of spiritual element. I'll share a quick story. I've got a, I've got a daughter, my daughter Shivani. She's now 10 years old. But when she was like three, maybe, this movie Moana came out. It's a pretty famous Disney movie. And um, I have every word memorized. I have a four year old daughter. <laughs> I have literally so, every so, word of that movie memorized. So, the, the, the quick gist of this movie is that um, uh, this, this, the ocean chooses this little girl right. for a mission, like for a mission, right? And so, I'm, I'm, I'm walking in Oakland where I live with my daughter when she's like three or four. And um, she loves the movie. She's obsessed with it. And she knows what I do in trivia, but very basically, like she's like, you know, Papa plants trees, right? Like that's basically what she knows. And she knows it's a very specific tree. So she says, she's like, Papa, do you know how the ocean chose Moana? I was like, yeah. And she said, did your tree choose you? And it's just literally this happened, Ross. I got to tell you, it's a true story. Like your heart and just breaks. In it just, it's just, and so I think what's made me kind of stay motivated here is that I've always felt like I've been service of nature right? Yeah. Like this tree is going to be here long after I'm gone, long after every single person in this company is gone. Right? right. And so will these other crops, all these, these other community crops that can really be huge. Could we be, you know, can we be in service of something greater here? I think that's been pretty motivating for me. Yeah. And, and that exactly describes what I feel and what I'm all about as well. It's, we know that there are these tools and we know that marketing and advertising, we know that they're very, very effective tools. We know that cigarettes and alcohol and all of these things are using them around us all the time. And we're being manipulated in a thousand ways from the time we wake up to the time we drink our first cup of coffee. And we know that there are these tools and they're often used for nefarious purposes by people who really don't care about anything but making more money at all. Right. And the the question is, people who are aware of these things, and again, people like you, people like me, and you mentioned earlier the marketing campaign from Mother Nature, right? Can we market Earth? (laughs) Can we do a better job of selling these things? I find that to be such a fascinating concept. Like Michael Pollan, this old guy, he's a bald-headed old guy, and he says, hey, gang, I just took psilocybin mushrooms for the first time at the age of 65. (laughs) Turns out it's pretty great. And then everybody's like, wow, really? Michael Pollan's an expert in psychedelic. You mean the guy who took him when he was 65 years old for the first time in his entire, yeah, he's the expert in what mushrooms are, but we listened to him and now Netflix and people are saying, huh, maybe that would be a good idea for therapy, maybe. But it's just a marketing campaign for a plant, for something that exists. 
Same thing with yeah. all of the cannabis industry. It's like, hey, team, what if we package it in this little thing and you can have a battery and it's on the go, right? My impression is just that it's so silly that we need to do this, but it we kind of do and need to is, do this, and right? It is the way. Yeah, I have to tell you, I mean, I, yes, yes. So, um, you know, how this lays to ground for Terviva, right, is that um, we are not going to be what we call a B2C company. Like, you're not going to see Panova oil anytime soon at scale on your retail shelf. You're not going to see Terviva delivering you a, I don't know, like a plant-based milk with Panova oil and protein. We're B2B. We want this baby to scale. We want this. Uh, we we want to sell to a lot of people who want to make products because that's how we have the nature impact. Then we, a lot more trees get planted, a lot more reforestation happens, right? And and right, we just made a an amazing first hire, uh, first leader hire for our sales and marketing team. You know, our, our our new head of sales and marketing, and she was an executive leader at a company called Impossible Foods. Ooh. Right, which which made the you know nice. the now very famous burger yeah. right that we all associate with you know in many respects with plant based foods right the plant based Ab- foods movement absolutely and she's amazing and uh, you know one of the reasons why we you know why we hired her is because she has this unique experience of creating this bigger message out of just like a burger right um, and and we want her to do that for. Panova oil, right? For Panova oil, Panova protein. Like we want, while it's going to be B2B, we want people to be inspired by something more than just what it is. Right. So you are right, Ross. We are going to follow that path of like, we got to kind of, we got to play the cards that, you know, that matter in the human experience, right? We got to make this really sexy. We got to get into the right hands of the right people that are going to make it seem sexy. Right. Um, you know, but I, I hope we never forget one thing, two things. One is that we're in service of nature. Right. So we should never perjourn the purpose of how we grow this tree for the for what we're selling. Um, and the second is the answer isn't just Pongamia. Right. It's got to be a lot more things than Pongamia if we're going to make change. And so we got to bring everything else along. Yep. I think that's great. And don't pull a Google and just completely flip flop on that in 10 years. Don't be evil. Eh, just kidding. Never mind. I know. <laughs> it's a real We're going to remove you know, that slogan from the wall <sighs> real quick. Um, no, I think it's a powerful message. I think it's great. And obviously, for those who are wondering what whether this is going to succeed or not, the accolades are many. You've been featured in many, many different publications, pretty much every one worth being featured in. Uh, incredible amounts of investments so far. So it is taking off. And partnerships with big companies like Danone, I saw, and uh, other. So it seems like the world is ready for the message and the product and the idea that's been 10, 15 years in the making. So I... I I think you're poised to do very well and I'm very excited and curious to see what happens in the next five, 10 years with this, but I have a good feeling about it. Yeah. Thank, thanks Ross. I, I, I agree. I think it's headed in a good way. I always like to tell the team once you get there, you can't go back. Right. So once like whatever adornment we want to put on Terviva, you know, in four or five years, like an, an IPO and, you know, everybody's, you know, done well, as a result of this or, you know, whatever, Panova oil is everywhere and people are, you know, loving it. We can't go back and decide that we wish we had done things different for impact or for our people or the communities in which we work. We got to do it now. Right. Um, So that's very much on my mind as we think about, you know, maybe we'll get there. Maybe we'll have that degree of success. Maybe we won't, but it it, it kind of back to our original premise here, you know, does it matter? Right. It's about the journey, right? 
Right. Depends um, on depends on what you think you're going to feel on your own deathbed. To go back to that, what are you going to regret more? That's right. That's right. Are you going to regret and, and, and failure when, more than trying? I won't. I'll regret more that I didn't try to do yeah. what was right. And again, we got to play the deck of cards that 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 we that we have, right? We can't. Yep. You got it. You know, it's food. It's agriculture. Like there is a system. We don't get to like completely break that system. But what's exciting is that there are thousands of companies trying to all break that system in their own way. Right? right. So if we if we stitch it together, we can reinvent a different direction that, you know, the food system can go um, and, you know, and, and really just try to kind of focus on the right you know, sort of social and environmental outcomes here and, you know, hope that with some good luck and, you know, some brain power, the traditional outcomes happen as well. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's what makes it the most exciting area and why I've you know, homed in on this is because it's just these, this intersection of how human beings work on an individual level and the motivating factors and understanding what motivates humans and teams and groups of people, but also understanding this other thing, which is how the earth works and the kind of inputs and the balance that earth achieves. And is it going to be perfect? Well, probably not. It's probably fundamentally flawed in some way, but is it better than what we've been doing, which is just growth for the sake of growth at all costs? Uh, undeniably. So the idea that we can do well for ourselves and employ people who are also able to feed their families and take care of their family in a very expensive place like Northern California, it's, <laughs> it's just an interesting thought experiment. And it's one that I'd like to see more of in the next 50 years because we've yeah. seen this old song and dance of the last hundred years. We know where that road leads and we know that it's not good. So it's time for a new experiment. Yeah. So. I agree. I totally agree. Um, I think, you know, to kind of come back to the beginning of the conversation, I do think, you know, have we solved climate change? <laughs> we did. We, it's done. <laughs> we may, we may look back 50 years from now and say it started with in, in this broad time period. Right. We may we may actually look back and say it started in this broad time period. I hope we do. Like, you know, with the thousands of innovative companies in the food and agriculture space, with the, you know, all the progress we've made in the last two decades on renewable energy. You know, the, one of the one of the things I, I like to think about is we made a ton of progress on renewable energy in the last two decades. And that's not even like a consumer thing. Right. Like nobody thinks about the electrons they use, but now we suddenly all care. Well, guess what? Food. We really care about food. Right. It's a much more tangible sort of thing in the cons in the consumer experience. I actually think that to me, that means I think we could make the same progress that we made in 20 years in renewable energy or energy. We might be able to make that in half the time in food because the consumer is really latched on to this idea of eating better for the planet here. And it's happening. It's happening in other parts of the world. Yeah, that is true. You see it. You see it everywhere. I think it's great, and obviously you don't need me to say that. Enough other much bigger people than me have told you that on an almost daily basis, but I think it's awesome what you're doing, and I wholeheartedly support it. I think it's a great mission. I'm glad that you YOLO'd into this, and I'm glad that your personal circumstances <laughs> and luck and Moana moment also led you to this. It's If my daughter said yeah. something like that to me, I could never stop doing what I was doing. If she uttered a sentence like yeah. that to me, I would say, okay, well, that's going to be the rest of my life. Yeah. Because no, imagine I, if she had said, like, <laughs> you can picture the person in the suit and tie and their daughter says, 
like, Daddy, do you exploit other people for a living? And they just like, oh. And then their soul is crushed. <laughs> they're like, oh, my they God, quit. what have I become? But you yeah, had the opposite exactly. where your daughter is looking at you, painting you in this really noble light. And that's a consequence of committing yourself to this thing that is just a little bit Thank better God, than boss. some of the stuff that other people have done. So uh, we're you. reaching the end of our hour here. Um, but I want to leave the floor to you, the final word. So what's uh, I got a parting piece of advice or parting quote or piece of wisdom and then just promote whatever you want to to wrap up this episode. Yeah, um, I mean, I'll just I, I want to I, one thing I'm taking for this from this conversation is this real crystallization of like what it means to be innovative. It's just a lot about empathy. Right. And, you know, I think your whole the, the whole experience that you create on this podcast is around that kind of concept, right? Of like being off the beaten path isn't as crazy as you think. There's always like a reason, a story, a journey why people end up doing this kind of stuff. And, you know, um, this idea that empathy can be this really big gate you can walk through to a, to a, to a life of innovation and all these new and exciting sectors that are happening. So I, th I think that was really, really an awesome, you know, an awesome takeaway for me as we sort of crystallized that together. Um, and, you know, yeah, I would just say eat the change to your listeners, right? You know, I even I'm not, you know, I should have probably self-described like I am not a vegan, I'm not a vegetarian, I'm a total omnivore. Um, and without getting in more into you know my personal choice there, you still can eat the change, right? You still can go out and buy those products that you see in your supermarket shelf that maybe you tried once before and you're like, eh, but like that's part of it, right? You know, that's it's part of it is like buying these things and eating these things and promoting these things you know, in your family and in, in, in your circle of friends, um, do it, do it right. Because it ma it's mattering. It's totally mattering. Like consumers are changing Walmart, Walmart's changing Danone, Danone's changing Terviva, Terviva's changing farming, right? Like that's how it flows to the system. So, um, thank you for this conversation and, you know, for giving us the chance to talk about what we do. Thank you. The pleasure has been all mine again. I think it's spectacular. And so many nuggets of wisdom in there for anybody who's willing to pay attention. So this episode is jam-packed with gold. So let's all rewatch it a thousand times, right? Um, no, but <laughs> I thank so. you. I thank you so much, Naveen. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, with, with that, the official podcast is over. <laughs>